Hey everyone, this is Patrick Donahoe. Thank you for listening this week to the Well Standard Podcast. We are on episode four of the final season of 2018. Hard to believe, uh, but we are talking about the principle of property. Now, that is a very broad topic and property can be literal like uh, real estate or also it could be the implementation of ideas. And so we're going to have guests that span that spectrum. Uh, but today we are going to be talking literally to uh, an individual named Michael Blunk. And I, I was fortunate to be on his podcast uh, about a month ago. And uh, he is really a smart guy, understands business well, has gone through the, the gauntlet that uh, the business owners uh, usually go through at some point in their career. And, uh, and he's come out on the other end, uh, very intelligent and has a cool operation that, uh, that's going on right now. Uh, but he's been in uh, the tech world. He's also been in retail. Uh, and now he has focused his efforts and his business on multifamily real estate, which uh, I believe is one of those one of those uh, niches in a, in a sense that uh, has a lot of appeal to both uh, the baby boomer crowd as they downsize uh, because of financial constraints, uh, but also the millennial uh, generation who also have the constraints of student loan debt. Uh, as well as uh, the wake-up call to uh, something called taxes and FICA and, you know, uh, the expenses of life. Uh, so anyway, so uh, so Michael is uh, it's a great guy. You guys can enjoy uh, enjoy the, the interview. He currently manages a ton of property, uh, over $65 million worth of it. Uh, and uh, he also has a, a new book out called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. And he goes through a lot of what his uh, his business is about. So definitely go and uh, and check that out. Now, if you want to go listen to the the previous uh, seasons that we've done for 2018, uh, the the first is entitled uh, Life, which focuses on the principle that you are your best asset. The second uh, season is titled Liberty, which is the uh, pursuit of financial freedom. Uh, and now it is uh, property. And this is off of uh, a, a very famous saying in philosophy and uh, originally coined by uh, John Locke, who is a, a philosopher uh, several hundred years ago. So I hope you guys uh, are enjoying the seasons thus far. Uh, remember to go back and listen to previous uh, episodes. And you can do that by visiting www.thewealthstandard.com. Com. Okay, so let's get to uh, this episode with uh, my friend and investor, Michael Blunk. Welcome to the 2018 seasons of the Wealth Standard Podcast, celebrating the principles of life, liberty, and property. You are listening to season three, Property. All right, Michael, welcome uh, welcome to the show. It's awesome, uh, awesome to have you on. Patrick, man, it's uh, such an honor to be here. Thank you so much. Michael, I thought we'd start just with uh, with with your story. I, I'm familiar with it, uh, and our listeners may know you from you know from your podcast and your and your recent book release. Uh, but for those who don't know uh, who you are, why don't you give us uh, give us your story? Yeah, I mean, I have a, a background like a lot of us have, which is I was taught to go to school, get good grades, get a good job, and and that's what I did. And I have a software background. I'm highly educated, Patrick. And, uh, and then was joined the, I was with America Online for a little while and joined the software startup in 97. It was a company called Web Methods. Uh, it was in the right place, right time. In March 2000, we IPO and put a bunch of money in my pocket. 
And then at the point I was like, well, I'm going to be, I want to, I want to be the CEO of my own software company. So I started moving around, um, spent two years in marketing. Last year I was actually in sales, really exciting, hardest job I've ever done. And then I'd read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which subsequently ruined my life. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so I, so I, I read this book and I was like, man, I got it all wrong. I got to go for passive income. And so I kind of, I just literally shifted everything. I threw everything away, my master's degree, my computer science. And I said, I'm going to take these IPO millions and I'm going to get myself some passive income. <laughs> and so my big idea at the time though, wasn't real estate though. I did a little bit of that because I could, I took, I, I, I learned to trade stocks and options. I took an apartment building course. I signed up with a flipping mentor. Uh, but my big idea was restaurants because I was surrounded by five guys, burgers, franchisees, just actually from Northern Virginia. So I knew a bunch of these guys and, they're like, oh, it costs us much to open and you can hire a guy to run it all and you just sit back and count the passive income. I said, sweet, that's what I'm going to do. Now, five, five guys at the time were sold out in this area. So I went with another concept, the pizza concept, and I signed up with them and I bought a 10-unit territory. I had a, a, a plan for world domination on the spreadsheet, hired a, hired a guy to run on experienced multi-unit operators. I have no restaurant background. And, and uh, it was a little bit of work for two years, uh, you know, and, but then I kind of achieved this, achieved this uh, state of semi-retirement and it was, it was really cool, but I, 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 did, I wasn't watching it. I really wasn't watching what happened. The recession kind of came, kind of knocked us back, and then it became a real problem all of a sudden. So, um, you know, I, short story short, I subsequently lost my IPL millions in the, uh, in the restaurant experience and clawed my way out with real estate and like so many do with, with single family houses. In my case, I flipped three dozen houses. I bought an apartment building, did a bunch of stuff and then realized that while I was making money, I just, it was such, so much work. And that's when I started to look at all the shenanigans I've done and focus on, on multifamily. So that's my, my, my story in a nutshell. And today we have an educational platform and podcasts and we own a thousand units and more, more exciting. We're actually helping other people buy their own multifamily. So that's my mission is financial freedom with real estate. So one, maybe let's highlight a few of the, the main lessons that you had learned from the startup days uh, in the software industry, which I'm assuming there was a lot of lessons there because you know, those companies, probably including America Online, those grew really quickly and crashed really quickly too. Uh, and then also just your experience with franchises or experience with uh, the, the restaurant business or maybe the primary couple of lessons you took from that. Yeah, I mean, through the, through the web method experience, I learned how to scale a company very rapidly because for the mm -hmm. first six months, I was actually programming stuff. Uh, but the rest of the time, I was doing, all I was doing is hiring, managing. Like, that's it. <clears throat> like, and I saw the rest of the company just grow like crazy. And it was interesting to watch that. Um, my biggest, I, my biggest issue uh, takeaway from leaving that is when you become your, your, when you become self-employed, you recognize that you don't control much anymore. Like, I mean, you went through this thing all of a sudden you're doing great. Woohoo! Recession comes along and you're like wiped out and you're like, Oh my gosh, I thought I was in control, but apparently I'm not. Yep. And the same thing happened to me. And then how do you deal with that? Right? So you get very upset, you get anxious, it stresses you out. And I went through these different waves of stress level. Right. And I learned to, to basically, I learned to be at peace with whatever circumstance there was. And there was, it wasn't just one. And it kind of like built up to the point where I was losing like $12,000 a month. Uh, basically, I exhausted my cash, maxed out all my debt I could. And I was about three months away from losing my house. So I had worked my, emotionally worked myself up to that. So by the time I got to that point, I was actually relatively calm. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I had, to, you know, I had subsequent ways of getting it. So learning to be calm um, uh, with circumstances 
those are probably some of the some of the main lessons uh, during this time. I like I like to call instead of stress levels, I like stretch levels. Oh right? yes, oh, I like that. Uh, you know, because when you're when you're weightlifting, right, and you, you the the muscles get strained and stretched, right, but that's how they grow, and and so I like the stretch level, and I would I would say that. You know, for, for those that have achieved the level of, of success, true success, uh, it's because of the lessons they've learned. And if they haven't learned the lessons that you've, you know, you've learned, I don't, I don't know. You always have those black swans or those, you know, anomalies that can, you know, throw you off kilter. I remember reading Rich that Poor that in the day, and I was reading all these autobiographies of, of successful people. And one thing they all had in common was massive repeated failures. And I'm like, I'm a pretty successful guy. Look at my bank account. You know, I got a, a career. So I was like, well, is there something wrong with all those guys or, or me? That's probably them, right? So I hadn't failed uh, to any really measure at that point. I really controlled most of what was going on around me. And I, I guess it made me, I may be overconfident or arrogant in some, in some way. Um, and I guess I needed to experience, you know, this massive failure. I don't know. Maybe it, it was necessary for me. <laughs> well, how you, take a- how you take action, you know, is – is largely the result of your of your past and what you've learned and the mindset that you have, right? And if if you don't have a a certain mindset that is looking out for a wide spectrum of of potential, you know, things that could throw you off, then you're not going to be looking for it. And so that's that's the point is that if you've had those experiences as you go into a new venture, you look at it differently than if you go into another. I mean, it's it's the stereotypical you know, new investor, right? There's, and there's been a lot of those since 2009, 2010 who have done really well, but they haven't experienced a downturn. And typically the perspective becomes, as you mentioned, like you feel like you're bulletproof. You feel that, you know, you're invincible, nothing's going to happen to you. And so the decisions you make, okay, there may be a corner cut here, a corner cut there that wouldn't have been made by an experienced investor, right? And those are the things that, tip, the things that typically will, uh, you know, catch you uh, off guard if there's something that goes, that goes sideways. Well, I was certainly like that with a restaurant uh, when I got started in restaurants. And my ma- main mistake was I didn't have a mentor at all. I just felt I had a bunch of money and I could, I could not lose. And I see it a lot with our students, you know, t- today. They're, I call them happy ears, Patrick, happy ears. They're just wanting to get a deal done so badly. And when you tell them this is not a bad deal, they get very angry with you. They're like, how dare you stand between me and my, you know, my deal <laughs> and my future. <laughs> the problem is, as you know, the last four or five years, I mean, I mean, you would have to be an idiot not to make money, kind of how it was, frankly, in 2008. Mm-hmm. I remember making investments in like 2005 and six, and I, I could buy a house, hold it for nine days, do nothing, sell it for $20,000 profit. And I was all of a sudden the genius. I was like, something isn't right. Like I could sense something was just didn't, was out of whack. But there's a lot of geniuses out there right now, and I've been through this, and so I, I have a, a higher sense of paranoia than I maybe did in the in the old days. And now you're looking at the contract. What is the default clause? What could go? What could the, the things that go wrong? And how do I mitigate those risks? And I would never even ask those kind of questions. And this is, and especially in this environment, as you know, man, I'm I'm constantly like, what? Where's my risk right now? What could happen if the market adjusts? And what do I need to do to mitigate that? Do I sit on the sidelines? Do I do something? And if I do, how do I, what, how do I do it? Well, here's what's, here's what I love about you is that, you know, you, you're in an industry where there's tons of opportunities and, but at the same time, there are a lot of new people coming into the same industry, but the background that you have is really important because if you look at the software industry, I would say the software industry is one of the, the most well-led and managed industries, okay, because of how quick it goes. Now, obviously, there's, there's flaws in every industry, okay, but the way in which management and leadership occurs is 
setting, you know, it's setting the course for a lot of other companies that, I mean, including mine, I've learned a ton from how software and technology companies operate where you're able to, you know, leverage other people and have teams and each person on a team plays a specific role. And that role is part of a, a whole. And, and I think that applies to every business. It's just software has figured out because of its complexity, okay, how to be very agile and how to accomplish a lot in a minimal amount of time. But then, you got into other businesses as well. And I would say from a retail standpoint, you know, re- or, you know, retail restaurants, like your margins are really thin unless you're, you know, like Gordon Ramsay and, and you know, are, are a famous, you know, where your margins are probably a lot more than that because you're intellectual property. But I would say those, the combination of those two, interesting, those two industries are fascinating to me uh, as it relates to the industry that you're in now, which is, which is multifamily. And that says a lot to me. And, and most people would, would totally discount that. They would say, well, that has nothing to do. It's a different industry. You know, he, has, his success has nothing to do with his, you know, his past. But I would say it totally does. And you know, in the end, you know, the, the thing I always look at in investments that I make personally isn't the investment. It's the person and the team behind it. Uh, because ultimately, that's where the failure typically occurs. It's not with the property or the investment itself, right? It's with the people behind it. And that includes business as well. So, so kudos to you for doing it and being so, uh, being so successful and learning from, learning from those lessons. Uh, I would say, as you're now in the multifamily space, uh, maybe talk about some of the things that you've experienced over the last few years and then talk about what you're doing right now. Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, I was like I said, I was I was just clawing myself out of the whole thing with flipping houses, and I started blogging. I got into apartment building, uh, and then I started blogging about it, and for the bigger pockets, and put up my own website, and kind of one thing led to another, and then through feedback, I created an online forum where people could get feedback on their analysis because we have an analysis spreadsheet called the Syndicated Deal Analyzer, and then someone said, "Hey, what? How about I submit a deal to you? Will you help me do this deal?" And I said, "Well, sure." And then another one happened, and before you know it, I have this deal desk program which is a basically a joint venture with a student. And when I say student, I mean that relatively loosely. You don't have to be a coaching student per se, though many of them come from coaching students. You just have to be in this, you know, Dealmaker Mastermind program. It costs like $50 a month. So the, the bar, financial bar is very, very low. But anyway, you find a deal, you analyze, you bring it to us. There's a series of coaching calls. And if you're not a coaching student, you're assigned one. And then if we like the deal, we help you get it to uh, under contract. And then the paid quote coaching st- calls stop. And we work out a joint venture agreement. So we've done about a thousand units through this over the last 18 months. And this That's is awesome. now our primary uh, source of, of finding deals because my mission is to help people do their first deal. So this uh, you know, allows us to grow and also allows the newbie uh, to do the deal. And what happens is the newbie does a deal and they do this 50 unit. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how big this is. And we're like, I can't believe this is so small. And then what happens is, <laughs> and then what happens, they do this deal and they're like, oh, that was pretty cool. I'm going to go a little bigger. So now they go after a 150 unit deal, you know, now we got to raise $4 million for this stuff. And then I have a couple knuckleheads who are going under 500 unit deals, right? And I'm, I'm at one point, so they're stretching our capacity to do these deals, but it's fantastic to see this, this growth in people. Uh, but that's how, that's how we, we've grown is, uh, is through joint venturing. And we also joint venture with uh, people who raise money with us as well. So it just creates opportunity all around. And I just really enjoy that. Well, to me, I mean, and this, I think I find it fascinating that, you know, how you're actually doing it, right? Which is, I would say the most apartment, you know, people, they, they go out and raise money and buy apartments and they take a, a certain percent of, uh, of ownership. But for you, you've essentially just put together a, an idea or, or a, uh, you know, kind of a business where all the heavy lifting is, is done 
is done for you, right? People find deals, you're able to analyze them and tell if it's a good deal or not, and then connect that, you know, connect the dots with other resources that they're going to need, which I think is, is fascinating. And it, it, it reminds, you know, it, it is in sync with, you know, what I would uh, is assume is, uh, is your tech background, because that's very indicative of getting a, a lot done with, with very little effort. Well, not to say that you're not putting forth effort, because you are putting forth a lot of effort, but you're doing a lot. Yeah, I'm reading Elon Musk right now, and it's fascinating, right? Because Elon yeah. comes from you know his PayPal software background, right? And yeah. I share that with him. And now he's a little crazier than I am, but what I like, he takes this software background, he applies it to an industry that has nothing to do with software. He takes yeah. it to electric cars and 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 space travel. Yeah. And because he has doesn't have any any background in this at all, he just does, number one, he doesn't know what he's doing. But then what he's because of that, he's now he's now innovating a space. Uh, and this is not really my plan to innovate this, the multifamily space, but because of my background, I'm doing things people kind of, kind of look at and go, what are, you, what are you doing exactly? It hasn't been done that way before. How are you doing that? Yep. And, and, that's, and we do use a lot of software uh, at the heart of it as well. But it is exciting to get into this stuff. And you don't have any preconceived notions about how something's done. And you kind of, yeah, on the one hand, you don't really know what you're doing on the one hand, but you come out with something that's really uh, unique. And uh, I, I enjoy that. I love creating stuff. Yeah. So, and this is again, you know, I, I gave you an, some insight into this season and the theme of our season. And these, this is all a perfect example of it where, you know, you're, you're able to take what you've, you know, accumulated up here between your ears and, and take that to an industry where you didn't learn it. And, you know, I've, I've had this experience over the course of the last, you know, 10, 12 years doing what I do because the industry I'm in, it's a very old industry. And I would say the, the average age of a, of a financial advisor these days, a holistic financial advisor is in the early 60s. Yeah, and more gray hair than you do. Way more. I have a couple, right? Um, <laughs> if, I grow, if I grow facial hair, I have a lot and, and some of them it's red. It's kind of weird. So I don't grow a beard. Uh, but the, you know, the, the idea is, you know, I, I've had a lot of people scrutinize what I do and say, well, you can't do that. You, you, you have to talk to somebody like and meet them in person. And I'm like, well, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things where you know people are, are ingrained as to how things should be, uh, and it, and there's always a, a better way to do it. And so, kudos, kudos for doing that. But let's get into you know. So I, th- I think that's part of the theme is being able to take your knowledge and apply it and make this you know aspect of uh, of the real estate industry more efficient. But maybe let's talk about just multifamily uh, in general because. Multifamily has gotten a lot of, uh, of attention recently, and there's a lot of, you know, developers and even new investors coming into the space, you know, institutional uh, money, uh, you know, private equity money. Maybe talk to us about this space and what, what you're seeing. Why is there an opportunity? Why is there demand? Like, what's, what's going on with housing? Yeah, so I mean, I can answer this on multiple levels. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer it under, you know, what's, what's going on in the space? Why is it, why is it getting so much attention um, I think the opportunity really is for the for the you know the, the the normal real estate investor, and I think that's really really opportunity. There's so many real estate investors out there, both people who have single family houses or who want to have single family houses, and you know they go to the real estate investor meetings every single month, and they go there why they want to they want to go there why because they want to quit their jobs, they want to shore up their retirement. At the heart of it, they want to control their time. That's what they want. They don't want to be a millionaire. Yeah. They want passive income so they can quit their job so they can do whatever they want whenever they want to do it. But, and, and I was the same way. I was misguided in my thinking on how to achieve this, right? So I'm thinking in my mind, 
I had my W-2 job as great as it was, wasn't so great in the end. And I, I want to become a real estate investor so I can do whatever I want. So I get on this, on this ladder and I get on the real estate investing ladder and I get to the top because I flipped three dozen houses. And I realize that the ladder is pointing up, is on against the wrong wall. The, the wall is really financial freedom. I had basically enslaved myself with my house flipping business and it wasn't what I wanted. Now, and so a lot of people like that. They're like, I want to be a real estate investor. No, you don't. You want to control your time. How do you want to do that? And so because I've done almost anything under the sun in, in real estate, now look at all the pros and cons of the activities. And, and meanwhile, this apartment building that I had, you know, back in 2011 is sending me mailbox money. I'm like, man, there's no work. It's so it's actually bores me, right? Like this thing's boring. But never I just get a check every month. I'm like, you know what? I like boring all of a sudden. Maybe I should just do more of that. And, and the more I study it, my concerns are or were, and this is everybody's two main objections, Patrick, to getting into this space. And this is why I love this opportunity. Most people think they need experience to get into this and they need a lot of money. So let me flip houses for five or 10 years or build up a rental portfolio. I'll buy one a year for 10 years and I'll take the experience and the money and I'll go and I'll graduate to apartments. Now, that's not a bad plan, but this is like a 10 to 10 year plan. And the truth is you can do it much, much faster than that by skipping all that. And the other truth is that you can learn how to overcome your lack of experience very quickly in probably 30 days. Uh, it's very easy to learn, very easy to do. And on the money side, you can learn to raise money. And this is the most powerful thing is that I had this major aha moment when I started flipping houses in earnest in 2009. All my money was deployed in the, in the restaurants at the time that we were still doing well. And I had none of my own money left because I deployed it all in the restaurants. So I had to raise money from people. I had this giant light bulb go off. I'm like, my gosh, I could do a bunch of stuff without having money. So before you know it, I had a million dollars deployed in single family house uh, flips. And that was wild for me. Right. And people don't know that. And it's actually relatively easy to learn how to raise money. So you put them together, those two together. And now I can get started with multifamily like right now, whether you have any real estate investing background or not. And that is the opportunity. And what I find is that the people I have in the, in the, in the book case studies from the time they decide Patrick, that they want to get into multifamily for whatever reason, from that point forward, they're, they're within one to two years away from quitting their job. Like almost, without exception. And I say three to five years just to hedge my bets a little bit more. But the truth is, from that moment of decision, it's much, much faster. I, I, I just know no other business in the world, software, restaurants, nightclubs, whatever you want, um, that, that you can permanently become financially free and in, in, it's, it's so quickly uh, from zero. And that's why I'm so excited about that. So let's talk, let's talk about, you know, the actual method to, to do that, which you've chosen as, uh, as, as multifamily. Uh, and obviously, there's lots of different types of, of real estate out there, uh, you know, land, industrial, uh, other commercial, retail. So the multifamily space, why is there such an opportunity there? And, and I would add to that, uh, and I'll remind you of the question if, uh, if, if, we, if you don't get to it immediately, is, you know, looking at the, uh, I would say, bubble type of mentality some people have, how would you say that or how would you address that, that multifamily may not be in uh, the bubble that other real estate is in? All right, let's talk about different asset classes. First, let me say a couple things. Number one, there are many ways to make money. I, I truly believe you can set up almost any business passively um, if you architect it right. And that includes single family house, flipping, rental portfolios, all those things. You just have to be very intentional about that. And, and number two, I don't want to talk anyone out of whatever they're doing right now. If something's working for you, don't throw it away. 
and jump into this new thing. Okay, I call that sometimes shiny objectitis. Don't do that. So if you have a job and you really love what I'm saying, right? Don't quit your job, right? Do this on the side. So if you're flipping houses or you have a portfolio of rental properties, keep doing what's whatever you're doing and just start doing this on the side. So I'm talking about not uh, putting a bullet in stuff, but expanding it. So, 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 so now, now with regards to your question about asset classes. There are in commercial real estate multiple asset classes and they don't all move in the same direction, right? So we have market cycles within different, with different asset classes, right? And so um, now I'm a multifamily guy and I've kind of built my message around multifamily. So it would be a little weird for me to go into self-storage or mobile home parts or light industrial. <clears throat> but having observed this, you know, if you're an investor, especially if you're a passive investor or even if you're raising money for people like us, I find people are investing in multiple asset classes, even as a entrepreneur. I mean, if I'm, if I'm hunting for multifamily and I come across a great retail center that's off market and, and the guy is retiring and wants to dump it, my gosh, maybe I should sharpen my pencil a little bit and maybe take that retail center down, right? Now, again, shiny object titles, you have to be aware of that, but you have to be opportunistic as well. So don't necessarily think one asset class, but there's particular reasons why I like multifamily over some of the other asset classes. So maybe now address where the economy is and why multifamily is uh, is in such demand, and maybe talk to, you know, what the, the next few years uh, are gonna gonna be like based on some of the statistics you're seeing. Yeah, I'm not an economist, but here's what I you probably know more about this than I do. But I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty right now. Uh, certainly has been with the stock market, huge run up, then a drop, and it's up and down volatility. People, they have a hard time, especially last recession, a lot of people still burned by that. Man, I don't know if I can count on my 401k being there when I retire. Like in the old days, it was like an uncertainty. I counted on us. All of a sudden, people were like, oh my gosh, I'm not so sure anymore. So there's, there's uncertainty in the stock market. So people have money. What do they do with it? They start scratching their head. Well, what am I going to do with it? So immediately people think real estate, right? And so there's a, there's a lot of opportunity within, within real estate. And there's more and more people jumping into space. And, you know, you're competing with uh, 1031 exchange money, right? So a lot of people that don't really need to buy uh, relatively smart, they just have to, they just have to save, save money. Uh, there's a lot of uh, international capital uh, coming in. There's high net worth individuals who are not syndicating. They're all an, an advantage to the syndicator. And it has been a little harder to, uh, to find deals. And we are expecting some kind of correction, hopefully soon. The question is, well, talk about what do you do now? Do you wait for this to happen? Well, it could be tomorrow. It could be in two years. So what are you going to do? Sit yeah. on the sidelines and watch? Yeah. I mean, the way we're doing it is just, we're just sticking to our investment criteria, right? So if I'm buying in a, in a great market or I'm buying in a really hot market, but my investment criteria is exactly the same, my chances of finding the right deal is going to be, I have to prospect more, but I'm still buying the same thing I would have bought five years ago. It's just taking me harder to find it. So the people that are doing deals, and they are, they're just hustling. I mean, right? And so in 2009, you could have bought, bought anything for you know, pennies on a dollar, but no one was because everyone was scared. So, so you're not buying in a recession because you're like, oh my gosh, where's the bottom? I don't know where the bottom is. And now everybody seems to be coming out of their shell again, getting into it. You know, just don't be that guy. Don't, don't you know, say fundamental stuff. Buy for cash flow, right? That's, people bought in 2007, no cash flow because it's going to appreciate in six months. So don't do that. Don't do a three-year arm or five-year arm, right? That comes due and you're depending on, on interest. Don't, don't do that. Go get a 10-year amortized loan. Like, like simple stuff like that. And um, so we're just, uh, you know, we're just sticking to our investment criteria. We're underwriting conservatively and we have to pass on most deals. But then the ones we do get, we're like- You're still seeing deals. Yeah, we're still seeing deals and, and say, what happens if we get a dip? So our rent's going to go down, you know, vacancy's going to go high down. What is our, you know, what is our margin for error? And so we're underwriting deals where 
maybe we won't make the, the returns, but we're certainly hopefully not going to lose the property in, in foreclosure or default situations. So, you know, 10 year, 10 year notes, nothing that comes due in the next three to five years. You know, if, if a recession happens and let's say a recession happens next year and it's, it'll probably, I don't know, I think relatively light, it'll be great because we can buy more. But then in another seven, eight years, when our note comes due, who cares? And everything will, will be, so we have a lot of, my point is just you have to build in margin of error in everything that we're doing right now. If we have margin of error on t- margin of error, margin error, then if it gets, if it gets bad, we have, hopefully we'll be protected from what would happen in, in the last, last time around. Yeah, and I would I would say you know there's there's so many different variables that would make an investment successful. But you hit on a few, and I'll add one before I, I reiterate some of yours, uh, which which is you know some of the demographic shifts. And John Burns is someone that I that I follow, who's a you know provides a lot of consulting and data uh, to private equity groups and uh, institutional groups. Uh, and so you know he wrote a book called. Uh, uh, the big shift, I think it was called, and it talks about uh, the movement of people over the coming years. And and I I witness I'm witnessing it firsthand in in Salt Lake, uh, but people are leaving you know California in droves and going to Nevada. They're coming to Utah to Arizona, but there's also a lot of people moving from the Northeast, right? Yeah. And they're moving down uh, to the Former. south to the southeast, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. And, and I'm not sure what your experience is, but, you know, outside of D.C., that has blown, blown up in the, in the recent years. So there's, there's shifts in our, in our country. And when there's shifts, people have to live somewhere. So here in, you know, Salt Lake, I was telling you before we started recording, you know, there's, there's apartment buildings going up everywhere. And my, my uh, literal next door neighbor, uh, he's, a, he's a developer and he actually is the, the designer uh, and the architect and it, and they've you know they've been putting up places left left and right just because of how many people are moving here, but they're all young people, and so it's all apartments. And the idea is, you know, for him at least, you know, it's been finding you know just cheap land and then building, but it's also been finding you know the the apartment buildings that are owned by eighty year olds and ninety year olds, right? That you know are trying to either get their estate in order or they've passed away and they're trying to you know get their estate settled. So uh, for those that, you know, because there's a lot of old money in, uh, in apartment buildings in different, uh, different areas. So there's always, there's always opportunities. You just need to know where to look. And then you also need to know, as you said, uh, know that it's uh, cash flowing. But I would say even a step further than that is you need to know the numbers. You need to know what the pro forma is. You, know, you need to know what the financial statement is. And you, you need to know what you're looking for because, I mean, if somebody really wants to sell a building or sell a property, you know, the, the pro forma isn't easy, you know, isn't that uh, hard to, you know, adjust here and adjust here so that the numbers work in your favor, right? So it's understanding, you know, what a financial statement is, what those, what those numbers really mean uh, and what, uh, what backs them up. Uh, but then, you know, I would also go to your point where there's some inflated, uh, you know, markets as well. So you have to look at, you know, the right places where there is demand, but then you also need to know kind of where, you know, where the numbers and where the financials are, which is what I like about your company because you have a, a full-on formula and, you know, deal spreadsheet and calculation and software that will tell you whether it's a, it's, a, it's a viable deal or not. It's not this, you know, well, I think it's a right deal or, or I think it's a, a bad deal. Like, you know, you know, empirically that it's a good or a bad deal. Yeah, that's right. I mean, numbers are at the heart of this. It's kind of a numbers. It's a relationship in a numbers business, also marketing, right? So you got to, if, if you don't have all three of those in one person, then some people I see partnering together, right? So some person could be very analytical, 
uh, and is very detail-oriented, and the other person is a relationship person, and they do brokers, and they start raising money. Uh, and we've seen many partnerships, uh, very successful ones, form in this way because everyone's got some of their strengths and, and weaknesses. Uh, so well, they're, they're- two, let, me, let me add two things to that because this, uh, this is what's interesting. I, I, this was actually this week, uh, not this week, end of last week, where a guy that, you know, um, that I have a ton of respect for uh, and does a lot of uh, multifamily, I mean, he, he said that he was on the sidelines, that he's just raising capital and not doing deals because of how inflated things are. Uh, but he's in the process of, of purchasing several of them. And, and, here's, and here's why, which goes into another point that we made, which is if you look at investors and you look at doing a lot of deals, it's, it's really not being a good investor. It's being a good business person because managing multiple projects, multiple teams, that's not easy at all. I mean, once you get beyond a team of like four or five, having experience around project management, having experience around accountability, uh, identifying and paying certain roles and responsibilities, right, for the job that they're doing as part of the entire business. So you often find that when people get too many deals, too many buildings, too many apartments, then the business sense isn't there and they start to drop balls. And then partnerships tend to unwind and then they'll liquidate. And so that's where some of these deals came from is just bad, bad business decisions, not necessarily bad real estate decisions. Have you seen that before? Well, I'm, I'm seeing it in, in our own, right? I'm very sensitive to what you just said mm-hmm. because we're scaling relatively fast. Uh, one, solution, one solution would be to, to, to stop buying. Uh, my solution is try to stay six to 12 months ahead. So the whole thing around asset management what people do I need? What software do I have that I, like right now we can do a bunch of stuff in Google Sheets and spreadsheets and everyone's good. But now, and when we get to 2000 units or plus, you know, we need a little more sophisticated systems. Uh, we have to start breaking out different roles. We might have an asset, single asset manager. We might have a single money raiser. We might have a, a single acquisitions guy. Right now it's like the same one guy, right? But how do we then, how do we scale this business in a way that, uh, and then what are the key performance indi- indicators or metrics that we want to, so all we have is different property managers they all need to report into a single view, and we're going to use software for that. I want to have a single view across the portfolio, regardless of what property manager you are and where you are, so that we can. So, so that's kind of the stuff that, you know, that that I'm think, thinking about is how do we scale this into ten thousand units, you know, and, and to do it in a way where we don't collapse on ourselves. And I think you, you know, you of anyone has the experience of understanding how roles play within the confines or the structure of a, of a team. And I would say there's a lot of others that I know that are accumulating a lot of units, a lot of investments that don't have that, that wherewithal. Uh, and that could, be, uh, that could be concerning. So, you know, typically you, you have a lot of variables going on that, you know, equate to a, to a market and, and equate to an industry. Uh, plus you have the economic factors that, you know, who knows what's going to happen, whether, you know, there is market collapses, whether there is, you know, interest rate spikes. I mean, who knows? There's, there's so many different things that could occur both domestically and internationally that could throw the real estate market out of whack. You just don't, you just don't know. Uh, but at the same time, you know, markets are always cyclical because human beings are, you know, we're, uh, we're creatures of habit and sometimes we behave rationally and sometimes we don't. And, uh, you know, typically, you know, I would say real estate opportunities are, are like buses. You know, they come around every, every five to, to, 10, uh, to 10 minutes, but you need to know uh, what to look for. And then especially if you're a passive investor, you need to make sure that you're working with the right team and a team that has the ability to scale uh, or is already scaled. And that just comes down to, you know, uh, asking good questions and doing good due diligence because managing one, you know, a hundred unit building 
isn't that difficult. Managing 100, 100 unit buildings, <laughs> that's a different story. That is a different story. Uh, but it, it is cycles like you're talking about. You're talking about the guy that, that has done, he's sitting on the sidelines and just kind of raising cash. Um, there's a problem with that is his investors are going to get impatient with him because he doesn't have a deal. So what's happening is, and this is not an isolated instance, there's some people who have deals and some people who have the money. Typically, pe people have had both the deal and the money and say well, they would just syndicate their own deal. But now, because there's a little bit, it's a little bit chunkier right now, right? So, so you, you might be a syndicator right now. You maybe have a, a lull in the action right now. You had, did your last deal three months ago and right now you don't have one. But you're, meanwhile, your investors like, Patrick, what do I invest in? It's like, I don't have a deal. I'm really sorry. Well, then I'll just go somewhere else. You know? Yeah, and then <laughs> I'll go somewhere else. Versus you going, hey, you know what? why don't I joint venture with someone else? I know someone else who's got a deal. I got to make sure they're not a knucklehead. Mm -hmm. uh, but why don't I joint venture with that deal? Now you bring your investors into the general partnership of someone who has a deal. And so we're seeing a lot of that going on right now. Cool. And so we, we have the ability to do more deals together in that way. But you, have to, you do have to be flexible. You have to keep your eyes open. Well, it's one thing, you know, as we kind of wrap, wrap up here, I'm gonna, I still want to talk about your book uh, and your podcast uh, briefly, but it's, you know, there, there's always opportunities and, you know, whether we're at the top of a cycle or in the middle of a cycle or at the end of a cycle, who knows, you know, and I would say it's always known in hindsight, even though a lot of people try to predict it, but it's one of those, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, the, the market is evolving, real estate is evolving, you know, it comes down to uh, the demand and real estate is the most in-demand thing because everything happens on real estate, literally. And uh, even stuff that's in the cloud, right? There's servers and there's, you know, there's people that work out of their house and you know, it's, all, it's all property. So the idea in the end is, you know, how do you stay, uh, you know, stay up to speed and uh, with the wind in regards to, you know, what trends are and where the opportunities are. And so I would say, you know, your podcast is definitely a way to keep in touch with you and to see kind of what you're up to, what deals are available, what the market is doing. So maybe talk a little bit about your podcast and what you try to focus on there and then we'll get to the book. Yeah, I mean, the podcast and the book are really, I mean, they're very close. I mean, my mission really is helping people come financially free with real estate. It just may not be in the way that they think, which is typically single family houses. So, you know, even on, on our book, there's nothing about apartment buildings on the cover. And I did that intentionally because of the objections I know it, it'll raise. And, and so in the book, I talk about the overcoming those two objections and the actual mechanics of getting your first deal done. Uh, because what's exciting to me is that you know, I don't have to show you how you can do 500 units so you can quit your job because of this law of the first deal. The law of the first deal says that if you do a multifamily of any size, you will be financially free in the next three to five years. And I'm not making this up. It's just a, it's a phenomenon. That's why I coined it. Someone who does their first deal within one or two years, they're done because they're, they, they, the first one is always the smallest, takes the longest and the hardest to do. It might take, oh my gosh, a year or 18 months. And all of a sudden, the second comes within weeks or, or, or just maybe a month or two after that first one. And then the third one comes. So typically, you do the first deal the first year and then you do, you do two deals in that second year. And they get progressively larger and you will have covered your living expenses. And that's to me, if I can reduce the problem down to a single thing, such as you buying your first duplex, my gosh, that's very powerful, right? Because I don't have to worry about the second or third. And so on the podcast, I, I just look for as many case studies as I can for people who have quit their jobs uh, with, with apartment buildings and just saying, hey, how did you get started? How did you, what were your challenges? How did you overcome those? How did you do your first deal? Or what happened to the second or third? Oh, they basically fell in my lap. Wow. But yet again, another example, right? And so it's kind of hammering home this point. Uh, it's just there's a lot of misconceptions about um, what people think they know about apartment buildings. And I'm just trying to, you know, get some information out there. 
And that's good because yeah, there's always going to be misconceptions and there totally is, especially when it comes to, you know, multifamily, multifamily living, what it's been in the past and what it is, uh, what it is today. Uh, so why don't you give out your, your website, how people can, you know, buy the book, uh, get, a, get a hold of you, listen to the podcast. Yeah, uh, the book is on Amazon. It's called Financial Freedom with Real Estate Investing. It's a bright yellow book. I don't know if you're showing video or not, but bright yellow book. And the website is uh, themichaelblanc.com. That's T-H-D, Michael, and then B-L-A-N-K. Uh, or just type in apartment building investing in Google, and I should be, I should be easily findable. Yeah, so that's it in a nutshell. All right, and we'll make sure we put uh, all the links on the show notes. You guys can visit thewellstandard.com uh, if, uh, if you're driving or not able to, uh, to uh, write down or jot down Michael's information. All right, man, it was awesome to have you on. I mean, th- this is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a space that I, I, always get, I always get questions about and don't really have, uh, you know, a lot of guests on that, uh, that talk about it. So thank you. Uh, thank you for your time and thank you for sharing some of your wisdom with us. Yeah, it's awesome. And I enjoyed interviewing you and learning about your business, which is fascinating. And I'm just going to go through the whole life insurance thing yourself. I think it's, it's, a, it's like magic. So I really appreciate you coming on my show. And, and thank you for having me uh, here. I really enjoyed it. Okay, Michael, it was a pleasure. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us as the Wealth Standard Podcast spends all of 2018 celebrating life, liberty, and property. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you on the next one.